0: Welcome to Morning Seminary. I'm your host, Simeon Sideways, and in this podcast we'll explore some of the teachings of the Book of Mormon, a strange book published in 1830 that Mormons claim is a historical account written by people from an ancient world. For now, let's ignore the Book of Mormon's mentions of horses, elephants, chariots, silk, steel, wheat, and all the other stuff that didn't exist in pre-Columbus America, or even how author Joseph Smith tried to sell the copyright to a fiction publisher. We are here to read some stories together. What comes to mind when you hear the word Mormon? The richest church in America? The trust fund of one of the world's biggest real estate holdings? Mitt Romney? Or a pair of young men in white button-up shirts riding bikes and knocking doors? For most people, it's the last one.
1: I hope they call me on a mission
0: Missionary work is a hallmark of the Mormon experience. As the youngest in my faithful Mormon family, I visited the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah every time my siblings went off to serve God's church in foreign lands. The whole family cried anticipating their two-year departure, but deep down, we were proud. Proud that they were doing the work of building the kingdom of God, on their own dime no less.
1: And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy. There it is. The reward of missionary work.
0: Bring even one soul into the fold and you'll spend eternity
1: with... And if your joy shall be great with one soul, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me.
0: Uh, I guess more than your joy with just one soul? I've got to pump those numbers
1: up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket.
0: McKay Coppins wrote for The Atlantic that Mormonism is the most American religion. The church's doctrines harken back to a bygone era when the ideal household comprised a bread-winning father, a homemaking mother, an all-American son, and a debutante daughter. Sins were identified by their capacity to stress the moral fibers of the nuclear family which explains why Mormons at large have a less than progressive stance on human rights and foreign policy. But the most American trait of Mormonism? The aggressive sales pitch.
1: We are commanded by God to take this
0: gospel to all the world. Only the gospel will save the world from the calamity of its own self-destruction. Only the gospel will bring joy, happiness, and salvation to the human family. This always be closing mindset is the lifeblood of the church. Legends of great missionaries abound, from stories in the Book of Mormon to figures throughout church history. Rules were changed to lower the age of eligibility for missionaries so the church could enlist younger and younger minds into missionary service before they become infected by the liberal agenda of American universities. But atop all Mormon missionary lore stands one unforgettable story. Ammon, missionary to the Lamanites. The Lamanites, if you recall from episode 1, are the descendants of Laman, Nephi's wicked brother from the beginning of the Book of Mormon. They are described as a wild, hardened, and ferocious people who delight in murder and robbery, for which they were
1: cursed with dark skin. And the skins of the Lamanites were dark, which was a curse because of their transgression, that their seed might be distinguished from their brethren, that God might preserve his people. And whosoever mingled his seed did bring the same curse upon his seed."
0: I paraphrased some of that, by the way. The exact wording is found in Alma chapter 3. But yeah, once again the Book of Mormon mentions a curse of skin color, something they deny teaching on their website. So into the dark land of Ishmael walks Ammon, who is immediately arrested and brought before King Lamoni. What are you doing here, Lamoni asks. I desire to dwell among his people for a time, perhaps until I die fearless. Unflappable. Ammon almost challenging this wicked king's resolve. And what does the savage king do in response? He unties Ammon, and then offers one of his daughters for him to marry. For people who delight in murdering Nephites, it seems weird to hand over your daughter unasked, but wait a second. That's exactly what they would want, isn't it? To mix their seed and become white again. Well, it won't work, Lamanites, because Ammon says no. He just wants to be Lamoni's servant. Cool, says Lamoni. Go take care of my flocks. Why was that so easy? So Ammon heads out with his entourage of shepherds to water the king's flocks by the river. But suddenly, other Lamanites show up. Cattle wrestlers. They scatter the flock, hoping to pick off the animals individually and take them home. The shepherds become very afraid. Now the king will slay us, as he hath our brethren whose flocks were scattered by the wickedness of these men. Apparently Lamoni, generous giver of daughters, killed everybody last time this happened. But Ammon, ever the optimist, says to look on the bright side. Be of good cheer and let us go and search the flocks, and we will gather them together and bring them back. The shepherds take Ammon's lead and round up all the animals. Looks like everything's gonna work out just... The thieves come back, but this time, Ammon's not taking any of their Using only a sling, Ammon fires off some pebbles across the river. He's so lights out that he kills six of them.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you!
0: And they aren't happy about it. Now I'm angry! The thieves cross the river, and attack Ammon with swords. But this doesn't work out any better because Ammon starts cutting off all their arms, and apparently there were a lot of them. At some point, the cattle rustlers cut their losses and run home scared, which must have been quite a shock to their neighbors, A couple dozen armless dudes stumbling back home. Ammon supposedly only killed one with a sword, but others must have certainly bled out in retreat. Tis but a scratch. Ammon gets the flocks back together, lets them drink for a while, and cleans up his mess. And by that, I mean he picks up all the severed arms and stuffs them into a nice little sack to give Lamoni. Naturally, this is a lot for Lamoni to handle, which I think is the right response when handed a sack of disembodied limbs. Oh, what's in the box? He's worried, not that Ammon may have been sent by God, but that he might actually be God, coming to punish him for the deaths of all those innocent shepherds he killed. Lamoni becomes very quiet, realizing he may have been caught red-handed.
1: What are you doing here today?
0: Is Ammon invincible? Is he protected by God? Lamoni thinks so, which illustrates one fairly widespread belief that as God's messengers, missionaries receive special protection from harm. When Ammon left to preach to the dark-skinned Lamanites, God promised his father that no harm would befall him. Other LDS scriptures seem to echo this sentiment of missionary protection.
1: And if any man shall administer poison unto them, it shall not hurt them, and the poison of a serpent shall not have power to harm them. Here's another. And any man that shall go and preach this gospel of the kingdom, and fail not to continue faithful in all things, shall not be weary in mind, neither darkened, neither in body, limb, nor joint, and a hair of his head shall not fall to the ground unnoticed.
0: Or how about this one?
1: The Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you, and cause the heavens to shake for your good and His name's glory.
0: Church President Russell M. Nelson even gave a training for new mission presidents where he said that missionaries who were obedient to the laws of God and man would be protected, both physically and spiritually. But if that gave you the impression that missionaries are divinely protected, Brent Nielsen says you're wrong. It's not something we teach, he says. Missionaries who believe God will protect them while in his service do so out of a, quote, youthful idea that somehow they're invincible. Sure, only youthful naivete interprets Ammon's story as evidence that God protects missionaries. Ah! Anyway, Lamoni asks to speak with Ammon, who is currently out feeding his horses. You know, the horses that Lamoni uses to pull his horse-drawn chariot, something that totally existed in America at that time. What wilt thou that I should do for thee, O king? Lamoni, recently gifted a sack of severed arms, is speechless for the next hour. Is it because I defended thy servants and thy flocks, and slew seven with the sling and the sword, and smote off the arms of others? Yeah, Ammon, probably. The guy who showed up, like five seconds ago, hacked off a sackload of arms and gave it to the king. Maybe give him some space? Believest thou that there is a great spirit, yea, this is God? I think he's got it, Ammon. Believest thou that this great spirit, who is God, created all things which are in heaven and in the earth? I believe he created all things which are in the earth, but I do not know the heavens." Okay. Calendars were invented like 300 years earlier at the very, very latest. It's highly unlikely that Lamoni wouldn't know the heavens. You know what the Lamanites didn't have back then, though? Horses and chariots. Anyway, Ammon tells Lamoni about Great Spirit 2.0, and it's a knockout performance. Lamoni is converted. He weeps and begs forgiveness from God and is then overcome by the spirit and totally passes out. For two days, Lamoni doesn't move, which doesn't look great to the rest of the Lamanites. Consider the optics. A mystery white guy shows up, the kind they usually murder, who cuts off everybody's arms and now it looks like the king is dead. They all start petitioning the queen to stop Ammon. One person even tells the queen that Lamoni's dead body reeks of death. But the queen says that's just how he normally smells. To me, he doth not stink. Credit to Redditor Kurinbo for pointing out that Lamoni apparently just reeks of death all the time. When the townspeople say he smells terrible, the queen reassures them that it's normal. Anyway, Ammon tells the queen that Lamoni isn't dead, but is under the power of God and will awake by morning. To his utter surprise, she buys it. Woman, there has not been such great faith among all the people of the Nephites. The king awakens the next morning, just like Ammon said he would. Lamoni is a happy boy, but his eyes are all puffy and he can't stop crying about his experience. In fact, he is so emphatic that he passes out a second time, only now joined by his queen, their servants, and even Ammon. Side note, all this passing out may seem a little dramatic to you and me, But being slain in the spirit was all the rage back in the mid-1800s when Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. Only a few churches today carry on the tradition, which is why it seems a little out of place. Anyway, now the townspeople are left to wonder. Is Ammon a curse? A demon? Had the white man brought death to the land of Ishmael? One Lamanite decides he's not taking any chances. The brother of one of those slain by Ammon. He's out for blood, and this little narcolepsy party is the perfect chance for him to skewer Ammon with a sword. Another real thing from that time. The killer lifts his sword and prepares to slay Ammon. But just before he strikes, he falls dead. Killed by God.
1: Now we see that Ammon could not be slain.
0: Seriously, where do missionaries get this idea that they're invincible? Well, that does it for the people of Ishmael. They're all freaking out now.
1: Game over, man. It's game
0: over. So to simmer down the situation, somebody walks over and wakes up the queen. Oh, blessed Jesus, who has saved me from an awful hell. Wow, sounds like she was having a terrible nightmare. A hell that hath no end, according to the footnote? A hell they never knew existed until Ammon came around? Is it possible that people were better off not knowing about it, since now they'll be condemned if they don't believe?
1: After a people have once been enlightened by the Spirit of God, and then fall away into sin and transgression, their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things.
0: The Great Spirit was nicer. Changed my mind. Lamoni's family and all the Lamanites from that area are eventually converted. They shed the moniker of Lamanite in favor of calling themselves Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, which is basically just racially non-binary. So to recap, Ammon intrepidly invites himself into the land of the Lamanites, and after receiving what can only be described as kindness and warmth, threatens them with hellfire should they reject the new god he introduced them to. People pass out, death stink is dismissed as normal, and atop this tale of invincibility and jingoism sits the maraschino cherry of bloody, grindhouse-style justice. And now it's time for... The Fair Fair
1: Mormon Mormon Response!
0: Let's get the fun stuff out of the way first. According to Fair, steel used in sword making, the kind that archeologists widely agreed didn't exist in pre-Columbus America, could have actually been imported from Sparta, which is near Greece. Lamanites conducted international trade. They also deny that mentioning horses and chariots together implies in any way the existence of horse-pulled chariots. Let me guess making that assumption comes from a youthful sense of invincibility. Ah! Beyond all that, though, they don't have much else to say about Ammon, so I'm just going to talk about the Mormon church's toxic missionary culture. It's telling that their primary recruiting pool is 18-year-olds, recent high school graduates whose young, impressionable minds are perfect for radicalizing, especially if intercepted before college.
1: That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. (laughs)
0: Rather than cultivate an identity away from home mingling with diverse peers and mentors, hormonally charged young adults get to focus instead on what really interests them, deepening their commitment to the church and embracing religious activism while shutting out all other ideas. Personal pursuits are also put on pause during the mission. If you are, say, an artist or an athlete whose expertise depends on regular practice, You must stop practicing and prioritize the recruitment of new church members. Scholarships are deferred. Budding pursuits wither and die. Strict mission rules also keep missionaries focused on church-based relationships by limiting time alone, keeping them paired up with other missionaries at all times. Unless they're in the bathroom, missionaries never get to be alone. They read scriptures for two hours every day and are strictly forbidden from reading unapproved literature, preventing run-ins with any anti-Mormon material, like science and history. Missionaries are given a few hundred dollars a month for food and personal care and hygiene items, medical and mental health care is highly regulated, It was my mission president's wife who handled what later turned out to be tendinitis by printing off stretches I could do before pedaling 5 to 10 miles a day on a loner bike that didn't fit my body. She had no medical training. But isn't the sacrifice all worth it? For some, maybe. Returned missionaries, RMs, hold high stock in the Mormon dating pool. They fit in with their RM peers at BYU. Family relationships remain intact. No eyebrows are raised in Mormon communities like Provo, Utah and Boise, Idaho. I personally know two ex-Mormons who received an ultimatum of go on a mission or get out of our house. Choosing not to go on a mission or coming home early from one can have devastating consequences. Many young people would rather lie about their faithfulness than face the stigma of going home early, and I don't blame them at all. Perhaps this is Mormonism's most American trait, forcing young people to choose between serving a corrupt billion-dollar corporation or suffering exclusion and losing all social capital because they wanted to plot out their own path. Although using charitable donations to build a massive shopping mall is also pretty American. Well, that's all for this episode of Morning Seminary. If you enjoyed it, consider sharing it with your pals or even supporting me on patreon.com morningseminary where you can gift me your very own sack full of arms. I could always use a few more. There's this king I want to convert.
1: Until next time, adieu. And remember, saying horses and chariots together does not imply the existence of horse-drawn chariots.